This is The Guardian. Today, the second episode in our Cost of the Crown mini-series about the secret world of royal wealth. What's public, what's private, and who gets to decide? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. We've come to the Tower of London, right bang in the centre of the city, right by the river. There's tons of people, presumably tourists around, uh, school trips and the like. I make the trip across London with investigations correspondent David Pegg. I don't think I've been in here to see the Crown Jewels before, so it's uh, it's quite new for me and a bit of a different thing to be doing for a a Guardian workday, right David? Yes. We're researching royal wealth, so it makes sense to head for the public display of some of their greatest treasures. So coronation is in a couple of months. That's going to involve crown jewels, the regalia, these kind of essential items and artefacts of British history which are going to be worn in public in a way that they're otherwise not really. And uh, they're on display here, so we're going to go and see them. We make our way inside, past crowds of people gathered around Beefeaters, the traditional guards of the tower and enter the building where the crown jewels are kept. Lovely, thank you. Oh, there's a conveyor belt. How do we do we... Is each side the same? Inside, sparkling crowns and scepters are displayed inside glass boxes. To view the crowns, you have to step on this slow-moving conveyor belt. That is like a pot of glitter's <laughs> been tipped all over. George and there, amongst the glittering rubies and gold, a jewel with a history, the Koh i Noor. Oh, here's the Koh i Noor. Crown of Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mother, with the Koh i Noor diamond. Oh, that one at the front, yes. Huge. It's one of the most famous jewels currently held by the royal family, but it's controversial, given the violence around its imperial roots. And its true ownership is hotly contested. India, Afghanistan, Iran, all lay claim to it. A symbol of conquest, the Koh i has had many previous owners, including Mughal emperors, Shahs of Iran, emirs of Afghanistan, and Sikh Maharajas. Now, the Koh i is not King Charles's private possession. Instead, like many of the jewels here in the tower, it's held by the sovereign in right of the crown. In other words, it's held for the benefit of the nation. There's a picture of the Queen Mother wearing it, so it's in the cross at the top. Oh, it's in the cross, it's not this one. Could it be that one? Oh, no, 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 you're right. Yeah, you're right, you're right. After the controversy surrounding the Koh i Noor, it's been taken out of the crown that Camilla will wear at the coronation. In its place, another fabulous jewel, 
the Cullinan III diamond, which is part of the largest diamond that's ever been found. It was unearthed in the very early 20th century in what's now South Africa and uh, was given as a gift to Edward VII, uh, the colonial government at the time. The, it, the jewel is then kind of cleaved and, and made presentable. And when it comes out the- That amazing stone is owned personally by the king. It's part of his private collection. So here in the tower mingled together are royal jewels that could be described as state assets and others which are private. That blurred line gets to the heart of the issue we're investigating. What do the Windsor family really own? From The Guardian, I'm Maeve McLennigan. Today in Focus, Cost of the Crown Part 2. Duchies, Diamonds and Dalis. Since this investigation began back in September... Our team of reporters have fanned out, travelling the country to try and find answers. But now, time is running out, and we're getting closer and closer to the coronation. On the morning of the 6th of May, King Charles and the Queen Consort will travel from Buckingham Palace in the Diamond Jubilee State Coach. The King's procession will proceed down the Mall, passing through Admiralty Arch and along the south side of Trafalgar Square, down Whitehall and along Parliament Street, to arrive at Westminster Abbey, where the coronation service will begin at 11am. This is a massive moment in the history of the monarchy. And for the rest of us, it's a time to think hard about how they're structured, what they do, and what we want of them as a nation. In the last episode, we heard how the King is given £86 million every year by the government, under the sovereign grant, in part to cover the costs and expenses of the working members of the royal family. But that's not the only money he receives. Investigations correspondent Rob Evans has been looking into two vast hereditary estates that generate an enormous private income for the family. We meet Rob outside the Houses of Parliament, home to the archives of the House of Lords. It's a place where he's become something of a regular. What, what we've been doing is we've been trying to... Um, we're looking at two big property empires, who are, which are rather important ones because they give money each year, uh, quite a large amount of money, to the, the monarch and the heir to the throne. The two property empires, these ancient estates Rob is referring to here, are the Duchy of Cornwall and the Duchy of Lancaster, which both own vast swathes of land and property in England. It's been that way since the 13th and 14th centuries, when the duchies were formed out of land claimed from lords and barons. The Duchy of Cornwall is a traditional landed estate whose 700 rural tenants pay rent to farm the prince's land. It now sprawls across 23 counties and 130,000 acres of southern England and Wales. More recently, you might have heard of the Duchy of Cornwall through Charles. As the male heir to the throne, he took an active role in the running of the duchy and transformed the holdings into a highly profitable estate. The wonderful thing about the Duchy of Cornwall has always been that family association going back all these generations. It's nearly 700 years old. I think I shall die before that moment comes, probably. (laughs) 
profits generated from this big property empire automatically go to the male heir to the throne, who assumes the titles of Prince of Wales and Duke of Cornwall. So when he became king, the Duchy of Cornwall passed to Prince William, and Charles as a monarch inherited another vastly profitable empire, the Duchy of Lancaster. They work like trusts, so you can't sell them on, but they can certainly benefit from their profits. And they don't have to pay any corporation tax or capital gains tax. Both duchies include swathes of farmland, hotels, medieval castles, offices, shops, and some of the most exclusive postcodes in the country. The Duchy of Lancaster consists of valuable land in central London, including the site of the Savoy Hotel, 52,000 acres of farmland in the Midlands and the North. So just how much wealth did the duchies generate for the family? Rob wants to find out exactly how much the Queen and Charles have received over the years. So what we wanted to do was go back in time, back to 1952, when the late Queen became uh, the Queen, and try to work out how much money has she actually got from the, this property empire over time. Rob's been shuttling to and from the House of Lords archives, right inside the bowels of the Houses of Parliament. There's no swish data scraping or text solution here. It's a time-consuming process. The duchies are required, under a 19th century law, to send their annual accounts to Parliament. But unlike other publicly owned organisations, they're exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. So there's nothing else for it but to go and dig all these old accounts out by hand. And basically you're looking for a key figure, which is how much money was sent that year from each of the duchies to either the Queen or to Prince Charles. And one day, our producer Lucy convinces him to take her along for the ride. So, um, so we've just come up uh, to the archives, and basically, it's it's quite a sort of old room with books on, you know, book-lined uh, room, and um, the archivists have got out the documents, which are all the accounts, and they've put uh, them to one side, and we, you know, we're about to go through and start looking. How are you feeling? Nervous and excited? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, actually, because this is my seventh trip here, so I sort of feel a bit like uh, they sort of welcome me as an old, long-lost member, a familiar flyer. Um, what I tend to do is I do a lot of photocopying. I just photograph all the pages, and then when we're home, when, when I've back in the office and we start looking at them. Right, right. And I was really hoping for a, for a scroll, but this is quite a contemporary looking <laughs> There are some of those that go back, I think, to 1970. This is it. Right. Page 24. And you see payments made to His Royal Highness. Right. Uh, for this year, 2007. And it's 12 million pounds. Rob continues to sift through these papers, taking photographs as he goes. When he gets home, he adds everything into a spreadsheet. Investigative journalism, as all this shows, can be arduous. But slowly, a picture is starting to emerge. 
After many weeks, Rob is ready to start adding up what he's found. So he gets on a video call with me and our colleague, David Pegg. How are you both doing? Fine. I can't see David, though. David's no. calling from a phone. Oh, David, I feel discombobulated that I can't see you. Uh, I, literally, nobody's ever felt that way before, Rob, so that's very nice <laughs> of you to say. Once the call is up and running, at last, it's time to start doing the maths. I see what we can do. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Okay, fine. So you're in D1, right? If you yeah. click on, if you click on D, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Do you want to read that figure out then? I'll make a note. Uh, so it's six hundred and three million. Six hundred three million six hundred twenty-three thousand two hundred twenty-three pounds. Yes. Since nineteen fifty-two to twenty twenty-two. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm going to make a note of that. Yeah, same. That's the adjusted figure, isn't it? That's I thought it was, that's actually slightly more than I thought it'd be. But um, and then let's do the same for Cornwall. It's uh, six hundred and twelve million pounds. So it's one point two billion collectively. I think it is. Yes, that's a low, rather large figure. So, <laughs> so... That is more than I thought it would be. I thought it'd be a lot, but I didn't think it would go over a billion. It's an incredible finding, found from hours of work trawling through dusty archives. When you adjust for inflation, we see they got payments worth £1.2 billion paid out during the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. And now, after all this work from Rob, The Guardian is able to reveal these figures for the first time. And the amounts coming in as profits from the duchies have just gone up and up. Rob plots them on a graph and it's striking, this upward trend. And what you're seeing, you know, profits that were down in uh, around two million, not to be sniffed at, now regularly uh, give the monarch and the male heir to the throne income of, of 20 million. The two duchies together generated 42 million pounds for the monarch and the heir last year. While the revenues have gone through the roof, there's been very little scrutiny about how the duchies work. Nearly 20 years ago, Parliament's Public Accounts Committee looked into them and described the arrangements in place since the 14th century as nothing more than, quote, an accident of history. In other words, it happens this way because it's always happened this way. The Queen volunteered to pay income tax on the Duchy of Lancaster profits, as did Charles on the Duchy of Cornwall. When we asked the palace whether this voluntary income tax payment would continue, they said... These are private financial matters and refuse to say anything else. Coming up, the royal family's hidden treasures. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? 
Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. So, we now know that not only do the royals currently receive £86 million a year from the sovereign grant, when you drill down into the data, you see they're also raking in £42 million a year from the two duchy estates. Those are not insignificant sums. You've got to ask, beyond the running costs of the palaces and their other expenses, what exactly do they spend it on? We know that the late Queen had a passion for racehorses. Her father, George VI, was an enthusiastic stamp collector. Her son Charles, an avid art lover, and indeed an artist himself. So, are they spending money on these things? I've been tasked with looking into which artworks have been handed down to Charles, and how much they're worth. A job that sounds easier than it is. So it's the week before Christmas and while most people have packages arriving through their door, presents and things, I have got yet another order that's been delivered. I'm opening now another book on royal art, Princes as Patrons, which brings my reading list to... What else have I got? There's no public list of which artworks the royals own. So I trawl through the news archives and find example after example of royals attending exhibitions or holding their own. Like this, from 1948, talking about the Queen Mother. Continuing her round of public duties, despite her present anxieties, Her Majesty the Queen visits the exhibition of Danish art treasures at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And this from 2018. This exhibition marks the Prince of Wales's 70th birthday in November of this year and it brings together over 100 artworks from across the world which include uh, works from arts charities supported by the Prince of Wales and shows them alongside some of his favourite works from the Royal Collection and from his private collection. That line, private collection, feels important. Clearly, King Charles owns some significant artworks in a personal capacity. So what exactly does he possess, and how did they get into his private collection? 
I start going through books one by one, then news reports, photographs, anything I can find online or in reference materials that mention artworks that are supposedly privately owned. And in the end, my list is huge. 392 specific artworks, including Oils by Lucien Freud and Claude Monet, to name a few. And there are many more that have never been mentioned anywhere. I want to get a sense of how much these things are worth. Hi there, it's Maeve calling from The Guardian. Oh, hello. Hi. Sorry, I forgot about your call. Sorry. No worries. Well, it's now still a convenient time. There's some amazing pieces in there, you know, Monet's, Lowry, Constable, Chalk. Um, but, yeah, very keen to get a sense, I guess, from an expert as what is interesting in there and whether it's possible to put a kind of estimated price against them. Um, yeah. Well, individually or... Uh... Yeah, well, I make call after call and get a lot of notes. It seems that the art valuation world is a small one. Many people seemingly don't want to get involved. But finally, some say yes. So I send my lists off, along with all the information I can about each artwork. And then I wait. But then, in one of the books, I find something. Tucked away inside this book on Prince Philip, there is an old... Aged, what's this, 1994 newspaper clipping from the Scotsman. And this bit of a treasure trove. Uh, it's an interview with Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, back in 1994, talking about his art and his, what it says, quote, his very private collection. There are some parts of the article that really stand out. First, the mention of a Bible given to him by modernist painter Marc Chagall covered in his own illustrations. It was given to Prince Philip while he was over in Denmark on an official state visit. Then another big name, Salvador Dali. He apparently gave Philip an etching and an illustrated book when the prince was on a state visit to the south of France. Now, if that was the case, then it's interesting they were displayed as part of his, quote, personal collection. The policy, when it comes to royal gifts, was written down a year after this exhibition happened and it states that gifts of high value should be discouraged, and that if they are accepted, then they're not the personal property of the recipient, but rather they're taken on behalf of the monarch, who holds them in right of the crown. It's a strange phrase, but what it means is they can be held and enjoyed by the member of the family, but they're not the personal property of that person. And yet here they are, displayed in an exhibition of Philip's personal collection. What it says here is that there are lots of works, apparently, in Holyrood House, the big palace in Edinburgh. So that feels like maybe that needs to be my next trip to Edinburgh. Maybe I can see the Dali or the Chagall sketches there. We're now approaching Edinburgh, where this service terminates. Thank you. That's, that's to get in. That's your ticket. Great. Right. This is a throne room. Complete with Christmas tree. Beautiful. And then the only clue of what the pictures are are the uh, signatures at the bottom. Inside were lots of old oil paintings of kings and queens. A Van Dyke, 
a Dobson in a dark corner. But no sign of those more modern pieces owned by Philip. So I've just come out of Holyrood House Palace. I stood in the courtyard, people are milling around, having probably overpriced coffees at the cafe. It was interesting to see rooms absolutely crammed full of artworks, some of them high up on the walls, some hidden in corners, some huge imposing pieces. None of them particularly with a lot of detail or explanation of what they were, so I was trying to do my kind of guesswork and detective work. But I think what was probably the most frustrating was knowing that above each of those rooms there's private apartments, private areas that are for the royal family that we don't get to see. So I'm no closer to knowing where those gifts I'd read about in the article, the works given by Chagall and Dali on official visits, where they were now. Now, the gift policy states that when a member of the royal family dies, the monarch makes a choice as to whether the gifts they receive should remain in the family or be passed on to the royal collection, which is the body of a million or so items of royal heritage held in trust for the nation. Well, these works would have passed from Philip to the Queen and then to King Charles. And when I wrote to the Royal Collection Trust to ask them if the gifts that had been given to Philip had been handed over, the response came back, no. And when we asked which of the artworks on our list were privately owned and which were considered gifts, and so held in right of the Crown, the palace refused to specify, though they did point out that works from private collections are frequently lent to public exhibitions. When I relay all of this back to the team, I realise other people have noticed the same. This blurring of the lines, what is public and belongs to the nation, versus what is private and belongs to the family. One reporter, Henry Dyer, has found that the royal family privately owns a stamp collection worth £100 million. Yes, £100 million for stamps. And among that incredible collection are... An unused blue two-pence Mauritius post office stamp, which was purchased by George V while Duke of York in 1904 for a record price at auction of £1,450. It's now worth at least £1.4 million, if, if not closer to £2 million. But there's this story that a courtier reading about the sale at auction in a newspaper remarked that some damned fool had purchased the stamp at such a high cost, to which George V is said to have responded that he was the damned fool in question. And so the collection has private material um, which was purchased by George, but also uh, state gifts, um, such as uh, a 1939 gift of um, uh, mint stamps from Canada, given while uh, George VI was on a state visit there. And more recently, in 2016, to mark Elizabeth's 90th birthday, a gift from the uh, Lao Post Office, which was accepted um, on the Queen's behalf by the ambassador um, as a state gift. That's what it would be, coming from a a foreign country. Um, But it was announced that it would be going to Buckingham Palace to be um, put into the Royal Philatelic Collection, which the palace insists is private. Meanwhile, our colleague, Greg Wood, the Guardian's racing correspondent, has been looking into the Queen's stable of horses. Now, everybody knows the late Queen loved horses and horse racing. One of the times she showed the most emotion in public was when her horse, Estimate, won the Gold Cup at Royal Ascot. Estimate might just strike the front. Simonon on the near side. Top trip finishing off well. Estimate has a neck in hand. Oh, Simonon, a royal win in the Gold Cup. Estimate has done it. And the Queen... 
is watching her filly estimate win the race for which she is meant to present the trophy. Her Majesty the Queen only presents two trophies during Royal Ascot and look at the delight there, the sheer joy. Greg has found something interesting about that horse. Uh, estimate was a uh, a birthday present for the Queen's 80th birthday from, from the Aga Khan, who is a significant racing and breeding figure. And it turned out to be an inspired present because a few years later, she went on to win the Gold Cup at Ascot. Quite possibly the, the biggest moment of her racing, her time on the turf, which stretched for 70 years in the end. So as presents go, a good one. And it wasn't the only horse she was gifted. What became apparent when I was looking through all, all, all the, the record of the Royal Runners over the last 10, 15 years was I, I was just really quite surprised by how many of them had been received as gifts. There were 41 in total. Most of them were bred by one of the operations run by Sheikh Mohammed of Dubai. And... They weren't sold at public auction and they ended up racing for the Queen. So the assumption has to be that, that these were also gifts. And Sheikh Mohammed and appears to have been presenting horses to the Queen on a on a, a basically an annual basis for at least 10 or 12 years, an average of maybe two or three a year. If these were considered as official gifts, like those from heads of state often are, then there are rules saying they can't be sold off or disposed of. You know what they say about gift horses. But when Greg digs further, he finds 29 of them have been sold at public auction. They raised a lot of money. I mean, almost £2 million from the sale of these, these horses. When we put this to the palace, they say the Queen had not considered these to be official gifts. Instead, they were personal. But yet again, it feels murky. Investigations correspondent David Pegg has been looking at the royal's private collection of jewels. And just like art and stamps and horses, he's found pieces that look like they were gifted. But it's been a frustrating hunt for information. Sorry. In the, sorry, that's your coffee moved. In the absence of uh, sort of official answers to questions, we looked for... These are two big, big books about by historians who are really, really interested in kind of royal jewellery, so the pieces that they own privately. The stories behind them, where they get them, um, who wore them and on what occasions. Those books allow David to make a list of the privately owned jewels. And among them are 11 pieces of jewellery that he thinks were given as gifts. The Royal's gift policy says that gifts from heads of state should, as a general rule, end up in the royal collection. When we asked the palace about the jewels that David had found, they told us that official gifts might become part of the royal collection in due course, but they wouldn't confirm the ownership of any of the specific items we asked about. And again, it, 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 it creates this, this huge problem in terms of understanding what's owned by the country and what's owned by them. So there's clearly a pattern emerging here. Senior royals are given lavish gifts by heads of state and other dignitaries. And rather than the people of Britain benefiting, 
In some cases, those gifts end up in the private collections of individual family members. In other instances, they're even sold off. If you are, you know, a businessman or a foreign dignitary and you have a lunch, you can come over to Downing Street and you can have a nice lunch with Rishi Sunak and you can leave him you know, a gift. But there are then very, very clear rules about what happens to that gift and how it must be handled. That's you know, part, part of the rules that we as a country have agreed on to keep our leaders on the straight and narrow to ensure the country is being governed well. If Rishi Sunak just walked off with some gem and it suddenly turned up that it's in his wife's jewellery box, it would be absolute uproar. There would be a scandal. But, you know, with the Windsors, they just kind of float above it all and stuff gets given to them. Is it public? Is it private? We're not going to tell you. Um, what happens when the monarch dies? Do they inherit it? Well, you can't see the will, so you're never going to know. And... <laughs> When you say it aloud, it sounds completely ludicrous because we've, we've got ourselves into a position where items that we associate as, as being sort of the, the defining objects of our national story, it turns out we might not own at all. The public are just entitled to know what, what, what is public property. I don't know, this, it, it seems really obvious when you say it aloud, but this is just not the way the, the, the monarchy is run at the moment. It's, it's run on this much more kind of preferential... Um, model where maybe it's public, maybe it's private, maybe we don't have to tell you. You know, that can't be right. It just can't. But in doing this work, looking at jewels, David has stumbled upon something else. Because some of the gifts that did end up in the royal collection have a worrying past. I go to meet him one day at the British Library. No, uh, whichever, what, 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 so it's third floor, right? Yeah. So you're not even allowed to bring a pen in? Pen's lonely. That's In the reading room, oh, wow. under the hiss of the air conditioning oh, unit, David shows me a document he's found. It's almost incredible you're allowed to handle this, really. It's so fragile. David takes a photo of yeah. the page, and outside, away from the studious readers, we look over these old records. So, records of jewels presented to the Crown of India, the Crown by India. Mm. So it's effectively several mm. papers. So what's that say? So, articles accepted the... by the East India Company that with this view the articles in the enclosed list be accordingly tendered in the name of the court for Her Majesty's most gracious acceptance. So you then have a list. A pearl necklace consisting of 224 large pearls. Next item. The report from 1912 explains how priceless pieces were extracted from India as trophies of conquest and later given to Queen Victoria. There's a list of four of them. One of them is the Koh-i-Noor, that controversial diamond we saw in the Tower of London. But there are other, less well-known jewels there too. One is the Timor Ruby. We found this amazing footage of Queen Elizabeth II in 1969. She sat at a table, carefully handling this incredible necklace of huge red jewels. She seems quite taken with it. This fascinating necklace, the Timor Ruby one. I do wish I could uh, find... 
think really one ought to get a dress designed so that one Especially could, could wear it. Yes. This is it, it, uh, the history, of course, is, is very fascinating that it belonged to so many of the kings of Persia and Mughal emperors. And it's come all the way down now until um, Queen Victoria was was sent it from India. It's all fascinating. It would be nice if one could go on wearing it, I think. Sent to Queen Victoria, she says. The reality was quite different. That, that phrasing, you know, it was sent to Queen Victoria, is, is extremely passive and doesn't really tell, in any sense, the whole story. Um, no, there's a lot more to it than that. Like the fact it was looted from India and only given up under duress, another symbol of our colonial past. The Prince and Patron exhibition is a diverse mix of Prince Charles's favourites, from this cloak left by Napoleon as he fled the Battle of Waterloo, to a pavilion created in Kabul by one of the charities of which he is patron. And extraordinarily, another of these looted items on the list, a girdle for, get this, a horse, has turned up fairly recently. Amongst all of these knickknacks is this, is this emerald girdle, which has been selected as one of his favourite pieces. And, it is, and it's a really, you know, amazing object. Uh, I've, I also found this, this diary in the British Library by a woman called Fanny Eden who toured the Punjab about 10 years before it was conquered by the East India Company. And she literally says in the diary, we've seen a parade of horses wearing emeralds. They're absolutely incredible. And then she says in terms, if ever we are to plunder this kingdom, I shall go straight to the stables, which is just so it just comes out of nowhere. Um, and of course, like 10 years later, that's exactly what happens. And lo and behold, this emerald girdle ends up in London and is now part of England's national heritage. It, it's, it, it, it's been on this very strange journey and, and is now being exhibited alongside you know, Prince Charles's watercolours of Balmoral. A Buckingham Palace spokesperson said slavery and colonialism were matters that His Majesty takes profoundly seriously. So we found gifts raining down on the royals for decades, some held personally, some sold off privately, and some put into the official royal collection, and some with a really troubling past. And as we're about to discover in the next episode, the links between the monarchy and horrifying chapters of Britain's colonial history run deep. I felt two things. As a researcher, I was very surprised, you know, that this wasn't more widely known. But also, as a person who's from the Caribbean and who is descended from the enslaved of the British Empire, I felt a sadness and I felt that this was really quite important and that it was very, very important that this was brought out into the public domain. That's it for today. You can read all our Cost of the Crown reporting at theguardian.com. And you can join a Guardian Live event tonight, on the 2nd of May, with myself, Paul Lewis, the Guardian's Head of Investigations, and a special panel discussing our findings around the royal family's extraordinary wealth. For tickets, go to membership.theguardian.com. This series is produced by Lucy Hoff. It's reported and presented by me, Maeve McClenaghan. Sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. 
The executive producer is Phil Maynard. Join us for the third episode of our Cost of the Crown miniseries tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.